the second Sunday of Advent, we're going to be in the first gospel, Matthew, Matthew 14, starting at verse 22, going until 33. So Matthew 14, I'll be reading that in just a few moments. Power drill. Superpower. Balance of power. Power couple. Willpower. Power house. Power outage. Brain power. Horsepower. Hydropower. Overpower. Empower. Powerless. Power boat. Flower power. Power broker. Purchasing power, power trip, nuclear power, power nap, power washing, solar power, power rangers. Now I could go on as there are many, many words that start and end with power. It's a common word, in essence, a noun but often used as an adjective to describe something that is strong, fast, and superior to whatever weak counterpart it has. We are often preoccupied with the best and the greatest, so power is an ideal that we value. Although we recognize that we must exercise it sometimes with great care, we know that a downed power line a 75-foot powerful wave, and a powerful lion needs to be handled with respect. So we give wide berth because we understand how frail we are in relation. Today, we're talking about power as we focus on the second name Isaiah gives to the coming king, mighty God. So we read again part of this prophecy from the ninth chapter of his book. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when Isaiah says how a child will be born and a son given, the description, of course, is of a human king. But then he drops mighty, mighty God into the middle of all this. And we can understand how a human king can be called wonderful counselor, like we spoke about last week, but mighty God? The Caesars and other rulers claimed divine right, saying that nor only had God given them the authority to lead, that he made them like he is. Thus, they were not answerable to their subjects, and in some cases, they saw themselves as a deity to be worshipped. However, that would not be the Jewish mindset. There is one God who is Yahweh. So we wonder, how would they have heard this? The child born to be mighty God. The term is a compound Hebrew title. The first part is El, the singular form of the word Elohim. In the Old Testament, this means one true God. It is most often used of God and only God. The second part is Gabor, which means strength, 
power hero. On earth, people are made into heroes by other humans, but there is only one who is truly worthy to be called hero God, which is what mighty God literally means. One whose strength is unequaled. Mighty God is never a metaphorical description, but the absolute truth of who he is. We talked about how Isaiah wrote this prophecy about a king being raised up in his own context, but also as a description for the future Messiah, whom we know as Christ. So Jesus is the mighty God. And we know from the Gospels that there are numerous ways Jesus lived up to this name. He cured the sick of their diseases. He had authority over demons. He raised the dead. He forgave sin. He sent out followers to make disciples. He called out the religious leaders like he was their boss. He performed miracles. He claimed equality with the Father and the ability to give rest and peace and life. He had wisdom and knowledge no one had ever seen before. He claimed the ability to answer prayer. Every day on earth, Jesus demonstrated that he was and is mighty God. And at the end of his gospel, John said that Jesus did so many things that weren't recorded that if all of them were written down in books, he supposed that the whole world would not have room for them. Jesus's might was never hidden. We could have talked about any number of examples of how Jesus lived up to the name of mighty God, but I've chosen this text in Matthew because in it, Jesus demonstrates his great power while helping his followers understand what it means to exercise his strength. So Matthew 14, starting at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. This has been a busy and sad time for Jesus. If you read just the uh, scripture before this, his cousin John the Baptist has been murdered. 
As a response to this, Jesus takes time away by himself, but the crowds are relentlessly following him. They don't know he's grieving. When he sees them, he has compassion on them, and so he ministers to them. And at dinner time, the disciples say, okay, bye-bye, time to go now. And Jesus said, no, we're going to feed them. So he feeds all 5,000 of them. And this is where we pick up the story, as he is literally putting the disciples in the boat to go across the lake and dismissing the crowds. And here is where I would have us focus today. Jesus is the God who miraculously meets us in our struggles, inviting us to step out in trust so we can rely on his might instead of our own. See, Jesus redefines what power looks like in this passage. He is the mighty God whose strength is not for looks, nor does he use it for total control. Powerful people often exercise their will to the exclusion of everyone else for what benefits them and them alone. And it says something about God's nature that he involves us, that he shows us his power, that he shares his power with us. So there are four ways that Jesus demonstrates his unique style of ruling here that I want to talk about. One, Jesus is the mighty God who spends time in prayer. People in powerful positions show what they value by how they spend their time. And the gospel records numerous instances of Jesus humbly seeking solitude. And we know that the human Jesus needed connection with the Father. And his model is one that we should take seriously. The invitation to stillness. Where we can breathe and just be with our God. Where we will find rest and grace and truth and guidance and peace. Where we can stop and pray for the needs of others that we know and the needs around the world. With few exceptions, Jesus' prayer on earth, they're private. But I want to emphasize that besides his need for connection as a human, his prayers also provided a time for him to be sustained in community with the other members of the Godhead. Jesus does not exist alone. He is part of a triad where they are a unit. So Jesus is the mighty God who took time for himself that has the result of putting his power in the right place. When we hold on to power as a central value, it will take all that we are because it has no capacity to give anything back. When we hold on to the precious commodity of being in charge as if it is a lifeline, all of our insecurities, our brokenness, our survival tactics, our ugliness comes to the forefront. Jesus valued prayer as the orienting place he lived from and encourages us to do the same. So if we want more of God's power in our lives, if we want to know his will, if we want to be more connected to God, we have to spend time in prayer for rest and refreshment, allowing God's power to heal us and make us whole, to ready us for what he has next for us. To reject this peace, to neglect this peace, means that we live in our own strength and power. Here we also see a parallel to Moses. 
the leader goes up the mountain to pray and ask God for the strength and the work that needs to be done. But we know what else he was doing. He was praying for others. In Romans and Hebrews and 1 John, they all teach that now, even right now, Jesus intercedes for those on earth from the throne of heaven. He is arrayed in full power, mediating between humanity and God, pleading with his sacrifice for us. Jesus is the king who does not value power for himself, but use what he has for others so that we would benefit from his life. As we think about his might, let us also celebrate his humility. Second, Jesus is the mighty God who goes to people in need. So I want you to think about this. Jesus sends the disciples away right after he feeds dinner to the crowd in the evening. And by the time he comes to them in the boat, it is early morning between 3 and 6. This means they have been on the water for up to 9 hours. Now this is not a big body of water. It's about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. But because of the winds and the swells, they're not getting any headway. When it says that the boat is battered by the waves, it means that the boat is being tortured by the water. While the vessel is taking the hits, the people inside are just trying to keep it afloat. The sea was believed to be the dwelling place for demons at night, which could explain why they thought that Jesus was a ghost. So let's think about this for a minute. The disciples are away from their teacher, which was his choice, not theirs. They've been on the water fighting for hours against the elements, just trying to get to land, just trying not to drown. And into this chaos and exhaustion, a figure, an apparition, comes walking on the water to them, something they have never seen before. We can understand why they're terrified. Jesus assures them with the same language that God used in the burning bush to Moses. He says, it is I, which means I am. So what he is saying to them is, take courage, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. On this part of their hard journey, he meets them. This is more than him being their rabbi. He is telling them, I am coming in power to help you. They have seen Jesus still the storm before, but here he doesn't do that. The winds keep blowing. The water keeps churning. He doesn't change their situation, but tells them they are not alone. He is in the middle of the sea with them. Often, we want Jesus to use his power to take away challenging situations that we have. He tells us to ask, and so we do. And when things don't change and we continue to fight the elements, sometimes it's a good idea to look up and to see where God is. Because he's always there, wanting us to know his presence, waiting to give us an I am moment. As we face the surging waters and the winds we can't control. In our lives, we just want a calm lake. And sometimes he gives us that. And other times, he miraculously shows up. Just when we think that we can't row another minute. 
Jesus is the mighty God who came to live among us. So let's continue to find him in the middle of our fears and our chaos and our exhaustion. Because he came to row with us to make our burdens lighter. In our lives, we're going to find ourselves in scary times, but he is greater than all of them. Third, Jesus is the mighty God who shares his power with his people. So imagine that you're in the boat and nothing has changed about your circumstances except that now the Lord is standing with you, defying the laws of nature somehow on the water. What relief you must feel. And what? Jesus can walk on water? His cool factor just went out the roof. But before you can really think about what's happening, Peter wants to go out with him. Now, I want to tell you that if I were on the boat, I would be over it. I would be like, Peter, sit down. Priorities. Jesus can give you a lesson tomorrow about walking on water if you want, but maybe we could just go home. It's already been a super long day. But Peter wants to try out this new miraculous thing that he has seen, because if Jesus can do it, maybe he can do it too. Now, Peter may not realize it, but he is doing exactly what a disciple should do. Because Jesus didn't have to walk on the water to go and help them. He could have said, and the wind would have stopped from the shore or from Jerusalem or wherever he was. He could have gotten a boat and gone to rescue them. He could have blown the wind so they went straight to the land. He could have done anything. But that isn't what he did. He went to them in the middle of their distress so that he could show them that his power could be their power. A great quote I read this week said, In God's economy, real power gives power away. So Peter climbs out of the boat and starts toward the Lord. And we know that when he notices the strong wind, he takes his eyes off Jesus and he gets scared and he begins to sink. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about here, but I want to hone in on something central to being a disciple. Peter was brave to get out of the boat, to do something he had never, ever seen before, to do something that would be absolutely impossible without Jesus. And I want to say how normal his reaction is. When we are invited to get out of the boat to do something extraordinary with God, we should always say yes. And when we do that thing that we could never do without the Lord, we should expect that in the middle of it, we might begin to freak out. And we might begin to flail around and cry out, Lord, save me. Help me. You're the one that told me to get out of the boat. What am I supposed to do now? So let's not get all judgmental Christian-y saying how Peter shouldn't have taken his eyes off the Lord. Because doing something new requires all your attention and all of your trust and all of your courage. And it's not easy. And when you find yourself panicked, the Lord is going to be there to catch you. Now, I thought of two instances that highlighted this for me that I wanted to share. I want to let you know that this first one I have permission to tell you. 
when Olivia was small, probably about 18 months or two years, she was learning to get out of her toddler bed. She was a cautious kid. She was wary of change, but she really, of course, wanted to be free. And Mark and I were not that eager for her to be free and run all over, but we wanted her to learn her independence. So one night I sat by her bed as she tried to get off, get out. Her feet were about this far, three inches off the floor, but she might has, as well have been hanging over a half dome. She was petrified. Now, she couldn't see how far she was, which was part of the problem, right? Because she's going off, her stomach is like on the little edge of the bed, and she's trying, she can't, she can't gauge how far the floor is. And I said to her, all you, just, just, just let go. Just let go. You're just, you're right there. I think we probably did it for a half an hour, 45 minutes. And she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm like, you can, you want to be free. You want to go. You can do it. Finally, she lets go and drops those last few inches to the floor, and she just beamed. She was like, I did it. And I go, get up and do it again. <laughs> so that she could remember, right, how it felt and how her body felt to do that so she could get a feel for it. The other thing that this made me think of was taking this job to be your lead pastor. Because that was a definite get out of the boat kind of moment. And there are times that I'm terrified at what the Lord has asked me to do. And I'm fairly certain most weeks that I'm going to sink and take all of you with me. (laughs) But calling out for the Lord's power and the Lord's help and the Lord's assurance that he is there has been a literal lifeline and has helped me to keep doing the seemingly impossible with him. And this brings us to our last point. Jesus is the mighty God who challenges us to trust him more. Jesus asked Peter why he doubted, but he uses the experience to teach Peter a lasting lesson about what trust feels like. John Ortberg has written a book about this story, and he says, Peter learned something that only being courageous could teach. His obedience became the training ground for future growth in believing in the sustaining power of Jesus as mighty God. You see, the other disciples who didn't get out of the boat missed the experience that when we fail, Jesus is right there, that we can trust him in all things. When we want to experience the power of God in our lives, we got to get out of the boat. There's also a tie here to Mary and Joseph. We lit the Bethlehem candle today, and I want us to think about this young couple who figuratively got out of the boat to obey, even when it was risky and very scary. And imagine how they must have sought God when it became evident that they had to go to Joseph's hometown when Mary was very pregnant. And I think of them praying the same thing that Peter did. Lord, if this is you... Tell us, make it clear, don't let us go if this is not from you. And God says, go. And the timing was terrible. And what could happen was uncertain for them. You see, Jesus doesn't stop the storm so that Peter will have this smooth glass lake to walk out on. And God doesn't make it easy for the young couple who are going to deliver the Messiah of the world. 
Instead, they are to rely on his power so that he can do a brand new thing for them and through them trust him. That's great implications for you and for me. That we need to know that God isn't going to wait for everything to be perfect before he calls us to get out of the boat. He might be calling you to get out of the boat right now about something. What is it that God wants you to do only through his power, not on your own strength? When Jesus gets back into the boat, that's when he calms the winds. And the disciples worship him as mighty God. And this has been a formative moment in their understanding of him. And it will change who they are as they live for him and trust him and build the church. What does it mean for you to trust Jesus as the mighty God in this season of your life? Often Jesus is our savior and he is the one we worship and we want him and need him to forgive our sins, but is he our mighty God? What does it mean for us as a church as we seek him for how he would have us live out his presence in a hurting world? And what does it mean for us in this season of Advent as we wait for him to come again in great power? We end with a quote from the author Walter Brueggemann, In Advent, we receive the power of God that lies beyond us. This power is the antidote to our fatigue and cynicism. It is the gospel resolution to our spent self-sufficiency when we are at the edge of our coping. It is the good news that will overmatch our cynicism that imagines that there are no new things that can enter our world. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.